Tonight's reading is from Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 56. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to, the, to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them. He meant to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, "Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, 
they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Thank you, Candice, and thank you, Joe, and uh, Ian, and our musicians. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is our light, it is our guide, it is the habitat in which the Christian dwells and delights. And we pray that our time together now under your word would be richly blessed for we pray in Jesus name and for his sake Amen so we'll come to Mark chapter 6 in just a moment but I want to say a little bit more by way of reflection on preaching and Bible teaching in the church And that might also be helpful in relation to the Q&A that we'll have after the service. The reason for this, I've been reading and thinking about this for uh, the Bonner Trust um, as it trains preachers and gospel workers and in other ways. And it's good for us to reflect on what we do and why we do it. Last week we spoke about application, getting the truth of the Bible across um, by... um, preaching or speaking or teaching the Bible to the heart for transformation. It's a good thing every week to pray for the preaching and Bible teaching in the life of the church. It's a good thing to pray for transformation in people's lives, that people really will be changed, because in our hands is supernatural words, God's word. This week, I want to say something about the truth we apply, the content that we uh, apply. So I got them the wrong way around, but never mind. Uh, I think perhaps because I, if there is a last word I'd want us to hear on this from the Bible, it is the truth that we apply. That's the bit that the application is not easy. It's important. We work hard at that and perhaps need to work harder. But what is it that we say and apply Let me just build the case for you super quickly, and I'll get you to turn to just a couple of Bible references, but if we had time, we would go through them all. Right at the beginning of the Bible, we've seen in Genesis that God is a speaking God. So one of the phrases that repeats itself through Genesis 1 is God says. And he has never ceased to be anything other than a speaking God. God. If you go all the way forward in the Old Testament to the Psalms, the first Psalm, the opening Psalm, has words that are deeply moving. Blessed is the man or woman whose delight is in the Word of God. It's very striking that the Word of God is spoken of as the Christian's delight. It's like we have a bird watcher here tonight. You are. You love bird watching. And um, when a bird watcher will recognize the habitat in which a species of bird thrives, the habitat where the Christian thrives is the Word of God. 
Psalm 119 is a whole psalm that uh, one of my colleagues when I worked in London wrote up in a book and he called it Bible Delight. Now whenever I hear that I think of something called Angel Delight which the oldies among us here can remember as a gruesome pudding of powder and water and the key is to make sure that you've stirred out all the powder. But Bible Delight is the right way to describe the Word of God. Sometimes I think we think the Bible or the Word of God or teaching the Bible is a kind of thing we have to do, but the Bible is spoken of all the way through the Psalms as our habitat, where we thrive, where we live, where we are sheltered, and where our deepest and truest delight is. All the way forward to the New Testament, the beginning of Mark's Gospel, we meet the Lord Jesus for the first time. And the first thing he does when we encounter him in Mark's Gospel is he speaks. Jesus began his public ministry proclaiming the good news of God. He is a speaker. On into Mark chapters 3 and 4, Jesus appoints 12 apostles, the founding Apostles of the church to whom he gave the task to preach and to have authority over demons in order to establish their apostolic credentials. But their ministry at its very heart was a speaking ministry. And the ministry of the church is a speaking ministry articulated in so many places in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But right after Jesus commissions the apostles to be preachers in Mark chapter 3, that is followed by these miracles, these parables of the word, the parable of the sower or soils, the growing seed, the mustard seed. The church's ministry is speaking the word of God. It is a miraculous ministry. And really the church's mandate in the world, think of the global church tonight. The church's mandate in the world is to proclaim the gospel from the Bible. That's it. Now that compasses a great deal, but that is the church's mandate in the world. And in times of great growth in the church, you're going to keep going with that because it's fruitful. But in times when it's not fruitful, when the seed that is sown looks like it's falling on the hard ground or when the growing seed feels like it takes years to grow or where you are acutely conscious as you speak whether up here or in a context like a wedding or a funeral or a bible study or one-to-one in our evangelism you're acutely conscious that it feels as weak as a mustard seed at that point and we're living through such a time in the history of the church in the west there is a huge temptation to look for a silver bullet and to abandon what God has said we are to do. That does not mean that we do not give real attention to doing it as well as we can. But we do not abandon the Bible or the gospel just because we are living in a season where people do not want to hear it. Now, don't misunderstand that. It's not like kind of hold on 
and, and keep doing it. We've got to think of doing it as well as we can. Gauging with people, preaching to their hearts, listening to them, intersecting with the culture, understanding where they're coming from. The word of God is at the heart of the church. Now, the one place I'd like you to turn is to 2 Timothy um, and to chapter uh, 3. And you'll find that on page 996 in the church Bibles. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 996, it's, it's a... It's a very important letter in the New Testament because it's the last word of the Apostle Paul as he passes the baton on to Timothy. And it's the the apostolic time is coming to the end and Timothy is representative of the first generation of Christian uh, gospel workers. And the letter um, says something very important about uh, the Bible. So chapter 3, verse 16 All scripture, and that means the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of scripture is breathed out by God. Now that literally says inspired by God. You may remember in in our studies in Genesis how God breathed life into humanity. And when God redeems humanity, he does so by speech. And the speech that we are to use for salvation and transformation is speech that is breathed out by God. That's what it's saying. And it means that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are God's words. Now, it's important that we say God's words, not just God's word as a kind of generic overarching concept, God's words. And it's really important that we don't think of the Bible as containing the word of God. The Bible is God's words to us and for us. These are fundamental things. All scripture is breathed out by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. And elsewhere in 2 Timothy, the scriptures are spoken of as able to make you wise for salvation. So all of scripture breathed out by God is what God has given us to, to open our eyes to see who Jesus is and trust him but also to change us. And therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And that charge is principally to leaders in churches because they have the responsibility to set the tone for what a church does, to preach that word in season and out of season. And then you get the repeated list, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, And the point of that is that it is the teaching and preaching of the Word of God that leads people to faith in Jesus and changes them and us. So that's our mandate. It's all over the Bible, and there it is in 2 Timothy, 
in black and white. Now, let's just pause. We've no time to pause. But let's just pause and, and just ask ourselves, are we, are we really convinced? But let's use the language of Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. Are we absolutely thrilled or thrilled that this is the habitat in which we are safe, and we will thrive, and people will become believers. And if so, let's mark that card again, because it's so important. If it is, and I hope and pray that we share that conviction, how do we then, this is the last thing I'll say, how do we then go about teaching the Bible? It's a big book. There are 66 bits to it, or books. How do we go around teaching it and preaching it? And we have to be cautious, because people teach it and preach it in different ways through different periods of history. We have to be cautious and careful. But over the years, I have certainly persuaded by people who are far wiser than me that the best thing to do is to preach it as our basic diet as a church in the way that most clearly and obviously reflects the way that God has breathed it out. So God has breathed it out in books, in coherent sections. So the best way, the staple diet, not the only thing, is to work through Bible books. Not the only thing, but the staple diet. And uh, there are all sorts of illustrations that people give to, to, to help. I'm, I'm, I'm not really good at illustrations, so this is not mine. Um, where is the Bible in our life? Is it in the driving seat of the car? This poor fellow who's the bird watcher was also a driving instructor. <laughs> a great illustration tonight, thank you. Where is it in the church's life? It's a bit corny, the illustration. And whose hands are on the wheel? It should not be the preacher's hands. It should be God's hands. And how do we ensure that happens? That we teach the Bible in the way that most obviously reflects and accepts and has confidence in how God has breathed it out, hence teaching through Bible books. That's not easy to do because every passage of scripture has a context and every context has another context. There's a whole Bible and all that, but the essential principle is we teach the Bible. Now, why is that a good and an essential principle? Well, I think principally because it puts uh, the Bible in the driving seat. It puts, it puts God in charge. It means you say things that you don't want to say. It means you don't say things that you want to say. It stops you saying things that are your hobby horse, if you like. 
And when you face difficult things, as churches do, and difficult questions and important questions, we all, as a church family, rest confidently and quietly in the fact that if Chalmers ever has a line on anything, it, it, it can only be the line that God has on anything in his word. And we wrestle to understand the word of God. Now that's not awfully exciting, is it? But it's the habitat. It is the sanctuary where Christians thrive and dwell and live and grow and are safe and are changed. So let's do our bit as a church in this time and generation when people are not hungry for the word of God to be hungry ourselves and to keep on teaching it while we have breath. Now let's turn just briefly tonight to Mark's Gospel and to this section from chapter 6, verse 30, through to chapter 6, verse uh, 56. Now the title in the service sheet is the same title as last Sunday night. We've called these Miracles of uh, education. The subtitle in the service sheet is last Sunday night's one, if you are well spotted, so scrub that out. But Miracles of Education is the overall uh, title. Why have we called them Miracles of Education? Because they repeat uh, things that Jesus has already taught us, or Mark has already taught us in the Gospel. Uh, We should never, ever, ever grow tired of repeated uh, uh, lessons at Redeemer this morning, um, I was there at Redeemer and they send our love. I had the great joy of baptizing uh, Sam's and Jen's three and a half year olds. They behave like little angels, um, which I think is quite rare from what I'm told. But they were beautiful and I cried lots, which is unusual for me. Um, so, I can't remember why I told you that. It's because I'm tired as well. I can't remember why I told you that. I just lost the place. Oh yeah, here we go. So, repeat, so Colin Fishbacker, who was leading the service, was doing a reprise of the children's work on Genesis. And he said, do any of you remember anything at all about the life of Joseph? Silence. And then, of course, he asked a kid, you know, pastor's son, pastor's kid, And bless him, Toby hadn't learned anything either. (laughs) And you were just begging for a child to say, Jesus! But nobody did. And that's because it needs God's divine illumination. And so do we as grown-ups. We need the lessons of life repeated to us. And they come to us in ways that are rich and nuanced and different and special. And they come with a whole kaleidoscope of colours but we need these lessons repeated to us. Now, last week in chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, the feeding of the 5,000, that glorious uh, miracle, the point of that in Mark's gospel is that we're convinced by Jesus of the priority of the miracle ministry of the word. That's what that's about. Now, let's turn to 6.45 to 52 Let me read just the beginning of it immediately. 
Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now the disciples may have thought as they ventured out into that lake, the sea to cross to the other side of the events just a few in our Bible's chapters before, recorded in chapter 4, verses um, 35 to 41, when Jesus went with them in the boat and was asleep and he stood up and he calmed that storm. And they, 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 they asked Jesus when he was asleep, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And here they are being sent out on a boat again. This time Jesus is not with them. Um, verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he sent them out in the boat. He went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And there he is, apart from the disciples. You can see them. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Now, why? I think the obvious meaning or understanding of that is that he wanted them to have confidence and trust that as they labored in that storm, number two, that they were safe because they trusted him. I think that's the obvious reading of that. He meant to pass them by. He wasn't kind of sure, though, that he would, I guess. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come to them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. And that's a human and a natural reaction. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now, we'll see in a minute in our last point tonight that this is saying a lot to us about the identity of Jesus as God's divine Messiah King. He uses the words, I am, the divine name. The, the words that God used to Moses on the mountain in the Exodus. Now that's there and it will come out. But let's not lose the, the, the beautiful application of what Jesus does. He is up on the mountain. He sends them out. He hopes that they have learned to trust him in his absence. After all, he will soon be away from them in heaven. And that's the boat that we are in. And he prays for them, I think, up the mountain. In Mark's gospel, Jesus prays at times of crisis, whether in his own ministry, like in Gethsemane, or for the disciples. He sends them out, and he sees them straining at the oars. Maybe he sent the storm, I don't know. And he comes to them, and he wants to pass them by. But out of compassion, he comes into the boat. And what does he say to them? Take heart. Do not be afraid. Now, 
I don't think this is too much of a generalization to say that in churches, the ministry that we exercise to one another is, is multifaceted as we use the Bible, as we use the Word of God to encourage us. But when we pastor one another in difficulties and storms and battles and struggles in life, and we give them a promise from the Bible, and that's why it's so important to read the Bible in these situations, because it's the shepherd's voice, it's his truth, it's his word that if you could sum up much of what we say to one another from the Bible, it would be summed up in these words as we journey through life with all of its struggles. Take heart. In Jesus, do not be afraid. And that just cuts over so much stuff. Take heart, Hebrews. In Jesus, Hebrews, do not be afraid. And these are some of the most precious words to us as Christians. One of the paradoxes that I always feel is that why is it that for people who are not yet Christians, they are not afraid? And the answer to that is that Satan blinds our minds to reality, to eternal judgment, to life after day, to hell, to heaven, to a cross, to a resurrection. And when your minds are opened by the Holy Spirit and we see things for how they truly are, there are moments of real fear that cause us to turn to Jesus Christ for our salvation. And a Christian is able to face death, to see death, to look it in the eye, to face up to the storms that they experience in life and to hear the words of the Lord Jesus, often spoken to them through a fellow believer, take heart, it is Jesus. Do not be afraid. Now there are people listening tonight online and there are people here in this room. And our prayer for you tonight is that you will take heart and listen to Jesus' words. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now in that little microcosm there, do you see why it is so important that we speak from the Bible and speak God's words. Because if I was to say to you, Luke, don't be afraid. Come on, it's not as bad as you think. Let's not talk about that diagnosis. Let's not talk about what might happen. Let's not talk about that bereavement. Let's not mention, as we did this morning, Sam and Jen wanted me to mention Charlotte, their child who died. They have three children on earth and one in heaven. And there are some here tonight in that situation. Should we just gloss over these issues? Or should we allow God's word, the Lord Jesus Christ, to say, take heart, do not be afraid. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing.
Because the words, do not be afraid, come into the human heart, the human life, and bring great comfort when we need them. Sadly, though, the disciples had not yet understood, and Jesus would continue to minister to them until they came to see and understand as they did and as we do. Now, let me just give you the two teaching points so far from this extended section. Last week we saw convinced by Jesus of the priority of the miracle ministry of the word. And then in the storm, trusting in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of power who cares for us. And then lastly, and this is written large over the whole section, 630 to 656, believing in Jesus as the divine human king of the new exodus. One of the things that we, we, we just don't get as excited about is how these disciples who were Jews would have been thrilled as it dawned on them that what was happening and what they were being told was taking the greatest event in their hearts and in their history, the Exodus, when God led his people out of Egypt and he took them from one side of the sea to the other by a miracle. And then they were in a wilderness and he fed them bread And they're they're beginning to see that being enacted out in front of them. And then they would see the sacrificed lamb that is the Lord Jesus on his cross. And the thrill in their hearts and the wonder. All over our passage are echoes of the Exodus. Like, let me just point out a few to you. The way that Jesus groups the people. So when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, they were grouped and set out in different units. Most obviously, they're in a wilderness. There are mountains reminiscent of Sinai. God is up on the mountain, now Jesus is up on the mountain. And Jesus takes them from one side of the sea to another with a miracle in the middle. It's just echoes of the Exodus, subtle, revealed by God's Spirit through faith. And most powerfully of all, when the Lord Jesus gets into the boat, he says, Not it's me or it's Jesus is he takes the divine name, Yahweh, I am. The name that God spoke to Moses back in Mount Sinai. We've seen that in Hebrews. And remember back then, it was a place of thunder and judgment and unapproachability. And now in the boat, the Lord Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He is God. 
And all the way through Mark's Gospel, Mark, our writer, has been building up a picture of Jesus. You may remember right at the beginning, God says, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. You are my son is, a, is not the son of God as in the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is the divine human king from 2 Samuel uh, 7 uh, and Psalm 2. But now alongside the divine human king is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the person that you and I believe in and trust. That's the person whose ministry is teaching the word of God that we follow. That's the person who comes into our lives and says, do not be afraid and take heart. And we imitate that. And that is the person, and this is the bit we do not imitate. We have no part in this. That is the person who is the king of the new exodus. Now, what's the takeaway tonight? That we are, the heart takeaway is that we are convinced, that we are moved, that we trust a little more, that we really go back to Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, that we relish living in this habitat as Christians, that we delight in the word of God. Or for those of you in these storms, that the Holy Spirit that indwells you quietly steals on your heart and you hear the voice of Jesus Christ, take heart, do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these simple lessons from Mark's Gospel about the Word of God and the ministry of the Word, about the Lord of power, Jesus, who cares for us, and about how he is the divine human king of this new and wonderful exodus. And Lord, it's a great thing. It's a great thing and a wonderful thing to know the Lord Jesus as our teacher, as our pastor, as our saviour. And if somebody doesn't yet know him here, Lord, we pray that by your grace and in your mercy, they would come to know him soon and know what it means to journey through life with him as their teacher, their pastor and their saviour. And Lord, help us to follow his example where appropriate and to teach the word of God for all scripture is God-breathed and help us just to go on teaching it and trust that it's miraculous. Help us to do it really well though and help us to go on caring for one another. Saying stuff like, take heart, it's Jesus, pointing to him, do not be afraid. And when it comes to Jesus as saviour, we have no part in that other than to accept it by faith and live in light of it and relish the fact that because of having him as saviour, we will live forevermore with him in a glorious new creation. So seal these things 
to our hearts, convince us, convict us, thrill us, encourage us, comfort us. For we pray them all in Jesus' name.